Amen. Well, good morning. Boy, we start in eschatology. Where does everybody go? <laughs> Open your Bibles with me, beloved. Whether you need to grab one under the chair in front of you or you have your own, grasp the living word in your hands and turn with me to the incredible gospel of Mark. Our love and thanks, of course, to Brady and Diana for leading us in worship. And I want to thank Brother Harold as well for opening the word for us last Sunday as Brady and I returned from the Shepherds Conference in California. There are few things as beautiful and as powerful as 5,000 men singing at the top of their lungs, raising our affections for Christ, joining in unison with the thunderous worship that surrounds the throne room of God night and day. To see every pastor and elder, every worship leader, every layman who attended, having their hearts and energies reharnessed and refocused and redeployed back to the most beautiful, the most valuable, the most prized, the most precious organism ever created in the omnipotent plan of God, that of the local church. Beloved, let us be reminded this morning, that's God's plan for you. To get you over the finish line is the local body. The very plan of God to inaugurate and to carry out his redemptive will in the world is not through governments and councils. It's not through the worldly wise, through the lofty and the highly educated. God has put his entire investment, a prize for his own possession, into the local church. Do you want to know the will of God for his people? Do you want to see a visible manifestation of the plan of the ages? They're sitting right next to you. They are part of the only entity, the only structure, the only organism that God has promised to grow and protect, to watch over and to tend to, causing her to overcome, causing her to stand in wicked times, to be salt and light, to stand as a testimony to a desperate and dying world, to be carriers of the greatest message the world and the universe has ever known. That sinful man can be reconciled to a holy God through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Therefore, beloved, if God has invested so heavily in this organism, in this body, in this creation known as the local church. If there is only one thing in the entire cosmos that God has promised to build and protect, ought you to invest in the same. Dive in with both feet to your local body. Don't straddle the fence. Invest in the person to your left and to your right. They are God's plan for you. Find a need in the body and fill it. Be joyful givers of your time and treasure. Be slow to take offense, quick to forgive. Find me a better investment than the one God himself says, I'm all in. I'm going to give everything for it. It is my prize. When we treasure the body the way God treasures the body, Beloved, every need is filled, every budget is met, 
Every floor is vacuumed, every toilet is cleaned, every child is taught, every diaper and nursery is changed. And not by the same five people, but by all who have found it precious. In fact, one of the greatest blessings of the Shepherds Conference is her volunteer force from Grace Community Church. They have more volunteers every year from the church than they have positions to empty the trash, clean the bathrooms, to even shine our shoes. There is no shortfall when we prize the body. However big the task or the calling, if her people will prize her, there is always supply. Now, only the Lord knows the plans for the future of our small body. But we do know if we will treasure her, we will be ready for all the Lord brings, for all he calls us to. What an encouragement for us today. Amen? Amen. Well, we're excited to dive back into our journey through Mark 13. Yay. Back to our season of eschatology. Eschatos, our study of last things. You know, and these studies are always of interest to people because, of course, our fallen natures, well, we struggle with the unknown, right? We want to know what comes next. We don't like dark rooms and we don't like blind intersections, right? We like certainty in our future. And it is here that believers are reminded of the sufficiency of Scripture in our lives. Contained in that beautiful truth of sufficiency is what God has chosen, is both what God has chosen to reveal and what he has chosen to conceal. He does both in his word. Beloved, if he were to reveal it all, we would melt in its very presence. Our finite minds couldn't handle the full divinity of truth. Concealing information is a grace in our life. Jesus told the disciples that he had many things to tell them. But they could not yet bear it. It's often observable that those who decry or lament or complain about cloudy and unclear areas of Scripture, who who use it as a reason perhaps to reject God's word or to play fast and loose with it, they struggle to even obey what is clear in Scripture. Notable author and religious skeptic Mark Twain is famous for saying, quote, Most people are bothered by those passages of Scripture they do not understand. But the passages that bother me most are those I do understand. And such as it is with these sometimes difficult matters of eschatology. But let us not lament that that some of these areas are not as clear and tidy as we would like. Let us be obedient to that which is clear. Let us live in light of the clarity we have been given. The beautiful doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture is ever so important as we wade into deep waters where we might be tempted to be frustrated or skeptical because of cloudy language. Let us be encouraged in those very areas that God has given us all the clarity we can handle. And beloved, let us not think too highly of our abilities to completely grasp and comprehend. Those abilities are intact, but they are fallen and God is gracious. So let that guide us as we swim in these magnificent oceans of eschatology. We rejoin our narrative this morning, knee-deep in what is known as the Olivet Discourse. We're knee-deep in the longest response ever given by our Savior to a question posed to him. This is a time of intimate teaching with his disciples. And indeed, this little sit-down on the Mount of Olives touches on 
so many mountainous topics having to do with eschatology, some of which we have begun to unfold. With time being ever so short now for Jesus, we still find ourselves in Wednesday of Passion Week. It feels like one of the longest days in history with all the rec- that was recorded on this day. But you'll recall is that this is our third installment on last things. And we began with verses 1 and 2. Reading, and as he was going out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Teacher, behold what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. And we titled this message 70 AD, as this was the near fulfillment of this prophecy from Jesus. And we did a deep dive into all the details of the temple and how and why this happened and how the burning of the temple was a type, a foreshadowing of the burning and melting of the earth that would come later, according to Peter, this being the antitype, making way for a new heavens and a new earth, for a new Jerusalem, as we see in Revelation 3.12 and Revelation 21.2. And we moved on to part two. We examined verses three through five, titled A Question for the Ages. It reads, and as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew were questioning him privately. Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? And Jesus began to say to them, see to it that no one deceives you. So we saw there the question from Jesus' inner circle that really truly kicks off the Olivet Discourse. And indeed, it was a question for the ages. As we explored Mark's recording of their question, it really begged us to look to the other gospel accounts, giving us a fuller view of the scope of their questioning. Because their question was not merely, when would these things be fulfilled? But as we saw in Matthew, what does he say? Tell us when these things will happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. That really was the heartbeat of the question. It's not merely about when the temple would be destroyed or when one stone would be left upon another, but rather what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. And thus we had to look very closely at Jewish eschatology. We had to look at these questions in light of how Peter, Andrew, James, and John would have understood it to be. Being reminded that they were not looking for the second coming of Christ as you and I do. They certainly were not looking for a rapture of any kind. The entire concept of the church age and all it entails was still shrouded in mystery. Paul writes as much in Ephesians 5.32 writing, This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Paul alone uses the word mystery 20 different times throughout the epistles. So we need to contend with that when we look to the disciples' enormous question. To these men, if Jesus was here, if Messiah was here, he would rule. There was no leaving and coming back. There was no room in their eschatology for a period of time between Messiah's coming and him conquering all of Israel's enemies. Setting all to right, restoring God's people to their rightful place. We saw that even in Acts 1. After Jesus has risen, had risen, what did they ask? Lord, is it time at this time? Are you now restoring the kingdom to Israel? 
They still didn't quite grasp it, did they? To them, the destruction of the temple, the coming of Messiah, and the consummation of the age were all three in lockstep with one another. There is no gap. Ah, but there is a gap. And Jesus has been telling them in various ways that there's going to be a gap. Now, it probably finally sank home for them, I would imagine, when he ascended up into the clouds. Yep, he's really going away. Well, beloved, if you've ever found it hard to change your eschatology from the tradition you've learned or were raised in, just imagine these poor disciples. That's an altering of your eschatology. Jesus ascending back to the Father. We were reminded as well in part two of really a topic that's worthy of a message all on its own, that of the church's relationship to Israel. This will become critical as we move forward, that we are not to replace Israel as the church in Scripture. Israel is not the church, and the church is not Israel. As a covenant God, he will keep his promises. He is not done with the nation of Israel. God will fulfill all the promises decreed to his beloved in the millennial kingdom. Thus, we do not replace Israel with the church in Scripture. And we're going to dive necessarily deeper into that as the Olivet Discourse continues and really requires a reckoning of these doctrines. And this is ever so important because it affects how we read our Bibles, how we go about applying Old Testament promises to ourselves today. That's important stuff. That's not high academic theology. This impacts us every time we sit down and read our word. So finally, we finished part two with a verse that seems perhaps more suited to the following section. But I wanted this to be the last warning buried in your spirit before we launch into part three. I wanted it to marinate as long as possible. That being verse five, which read, see to it that no one deceives you. Indeed, we examine the bookends of the Olivet Discourse, seeing first in verse 5, see to it that no one deceives you, and all the way down to verse 37, the very end of chapter 13, saying what? And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Don't be deceived, stay awake. That is the disposition of our mind and our heart, not only as we study these matters, but as we live in light of them. The disciples believe the time has come for Messiah's reign. And Jesus has to educate them. You're not in the time you think you are. Not yet. I need to make space in your minds and your hearts for things to get very bad before they get very good. Because you will need to take heart. You will need to be expecting this or you will lose heart. Meaning our Lord told us this would come. How comforting is that knowledge? Well, today we begin a hard look that will span the next two to three messages, I'm guessing, with a break for Easter. We will watch as Jesus is going to lay out for the disciples, indeed for us, what the nature of human existence is going to look like, both before and after the rapture of his church. What will be the realities of life on this ship called Earth between Jesus' first coming During the church age, at the rapture of his church, the tribulation, and finally, his second coming. I'm going to give fair warning here to the flock. (laughs) 
We are attempting to peel back the layers of this onion slowly. And we don't want to overwhelm. We want to equip and encourage. But it will take work on your part. You will need to be an expository listener. You might even need to take a note or two or go back and listen to the message again online. Today's message is one of those ones you may want another crack at. Such resources to avail ourselves of, we're grateful for. But eschatology, beloved, is not for the slothful. Forewarned is forearmed, I like to say. So with that, let us look to our text as we explore last things, birth pains. Mark 13, 6 through 8. Mark 13, 6 through 8. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will mislead many. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pains. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, there are special portions of Scripture, Lord, where we truly cry out from the depths of our spirit that we need the Holy Spirit, Lord, that we need to be taught by you, we need to be taught by your word, Lord, in these difficult things and these challenging matters that you lay before us, Lord, our heart disposition, Lord, is to not be deceived, but to stay awake. Lord, we ask that you would abide with your word. Lord, that even as we consider these things, that our path and our trajectory might be altered. That we may live as different people in light of these truths. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. <coughs> Excuse me. Well, I had a bit, of a, uh, well, a bit of a Twilight Zone experience this week. I was read an author in a Rolling Stones article, of all places, that was attempting to correct the eschatology of the 700 Club's Pat Robertson. That's an interesting battle. Yeah. The headline read, Evangelicals like Pat Robertson are convinced Putin is being compelled by God to wage war and to bring about the end times. And the article highlighted what they called, quote, end time Christians who think the Ukraine invasion means Jesus is returning to earth. Now, while one does not get their theology from the Rolling Stones and their ultimate solutions and conclusions were profoundly unbiblical, they did put their finger on a systemic lack of discernment in the theology and eschatology of many American Christians. The Internet and the bookstores, well, they're, they're filled with people looking for signs of the times, aren't they? Kicking off in World War I, people were convinced that Jesus' second coming was imminent. You add in World War II, the atomic bomb, and they were sure of it. Oh, you should have seen the books that were written on the subjects during the World Wars. Well, nothing has changed. We have entire parachurch ministries that are dedicated to reading the tea leaves of world events. So let us plainly answer the question from the beginning. Are we living in the end times? Well, according to Jesus' definition of it, the answer is a very simple yes. The entire chapter of 2 Peter 3 tells us this very thing. 
The end times, by definition, began with the ascension of Christ. But yet we mustn't confuse end with short. The end can be quite long. Every congregant who's ever sat under a pastor who uses those three deadly words, end in closing, can testify to that. The end can be long. But just like a pastor shouldn't say that, because the moment you do, right, your people mentally check out, so it is with Christ. You don't get a end in closing. It stops in the twinkling of an eye. And you are to remain engaged the whole way through. You don't know exactly when the end is coming. You can check your watch. You can speculate, but you don't know. The end times, which culminate with the end of days, are comprised of the time between Jesus' ascension and Jesus' return. Now, interestingly, a Pew Research poll shows that approximately 49% of Americans believe that we are living in the end times. Well, there we go. We can help out the other 51%. Yes, we are. 2 Peter 3. But baked within that statement and baked within the reality that we are living in the last days are profound truths and timelines that we must grasp if we're to read our Bibles properly. We need to, we need to pour a little cement first to build on. Our common challenge in the American church, one common challenge in the American church that keeps us from good understanding, from developing a sound eschatology, is first the confusion of the rapture, the taking up of the church, and the second coming of Christ. Now, these are often amalgamated or conflated in people's minds. You sometimes even see people using these terms interchangeably. That's going to cause some real head scratchers when we try to nail down our eschatology. These two events, the rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ, while they both involve the return of Christ, one in the air and one back to the earth, these are two distinct different events, not to be confused. These days when someone says, oh, brother, Jesus is coming back soon. Say, yes, amen. But what do you mean by that? Right? What is the actual hope that they are looking toward and encouraging themselves with? When people hear Jesus is coming, they are tempted to think second coming. If this is confused, the Olivet Discourse and much of Revelation will be a bear for you to understand. So first, the rapture of the church described in 1 Thessalonians 4. For we say this to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not proceed those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven and with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who remain, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And Paul encourages the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 15. Behold, I am telling you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. 
You see, the rapture wasn't a doctrine that was taught or even seen in the Old Testament. That's why Paul calls it a mystery. It's a mystery now revealed, just like the church age or the entire concept of the church was not seen or known in the Old Testament. It was a mystery now revealed. So when does the rapture occur? When will genuine followers of Christ meet the Lord in the air as Paul describes it? Short answer, anytime now. We live in anticipation of this event. We live in light of this event. Paul tells Titus, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly and righteously and godly in this present age. Doing what? Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of our Lord and great Savior, Jesus Christ. So not only are we looking for it, Paul tells Titus, but here's how you are to live in light of that truth. So in respect to the time of tribulation that is coming, as described in our Olivet Discourse, when does the rapture of his church occur? As we move forward in our exploration of the tribulation, as we enumerate the truly awful nature of it, that's beyond the comprehension of most, it it pulverized in scope and scale any other trial in history, as the wrath of God is truly poured out on the world and judgment is brought to bear, where does the rapture work into that whole scene? Well, we're reminded by John the Revelator in Revelation 3.10, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole earth to try those who dwell on the earth. We are reminded by Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5.9 that God has not destined us for wrath. These point, these point to God removing his church prior to this terrible time of judgment and tribulation on the earth. Now, while there are orthodox theologians who hold differing views of this and what are known as as pre-trib, mid-trib, and post-trib positions, my humble conviction, as we witness and explore further the truly awful bowls of God's wrath that are to be poured out, wiping out vast swaths of world populations, that we are to be spared that as his children and thus are taken up prior to God unleashing upon the world. While the church is mentioned 20 times in the first few chapters of Revelation, prior to the tribulation, yet upon the inauguration of the tribulation in in chapters 6 through 19, in all the remaining chapters laying out the incredible judgments of God upon the earth, the church is never mentioned again anywhere. Why? Because she's not there. Because she's been taken out of that. Now this would be defined as a pre-trib position. Meaning the church is taken up pre-tribulation. Now I know many of you know these things. But many don't. So for those that do, it's a great refresher. And thanks for being patient with those who have yet to explore these truths. But that's the rapture. Quick and dirty. Now how about the second coming of Christ? That we're not to confuse with the rapture. What is that? The second coming occurs after the time of the great tribulation. This is Jesus coming again to wage war and to usher in his millennial kingdom. Everyone everywhere will see Jesus' second coming, Revelation 1-7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Speaking about the Jews as a people. 
and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. In the second coming, Jesus is coming all the way down to earth. And when he touches down, Armageddon is coming. The earth is going to shake, Zechariah 14.4. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. And guess who's coming with Jesus when he does that? At his second coming, guess who's coming in tow? You are. Revelation 19.14. How cool is that? We're going to expand on that a little bit later. So brief recap. The rapture occurs before the tribulation. The second coming occurs after the tribulation. At the rapture, believers meet the Lord in the air. At the second coming, believers return with the Lord to the earth. The rapture will be secret and instant in the twinkling of an eye. The second coming will be visible to everyone. The rapture is a benevolent act of deliverance and removal of the church. The second coming has the removal of unbelievers in an act of judgment. The rapture is imminent. It could occur at any time. The second coming will not occur until many other events take place. You see why you're going to need to re-listen to this message? I can see everyone wishing they brought their pens. Hang in there, step by step, right? We're peeling the onion slowly, beloved. It can be a lot to process, but these are two distinctives that we need nailed down if we're going to make sense of the Olivet Discourse. Now, as we work back toward our text and just our verses today, what do we see? We see talk of great deception. We see wars and conflicts, earthquakes. We see famines. If we look forward to our later text, verse 9, we see persecution, treachery, betrayal by family. All the way to verse 13, being hated by all. If you will recall, when we opened our series, we saw Jesus inaugurating this discussion by speaking about the temple. And we discussed the fulfillment of that in 70 AD. But we also discussed and we highlighted the type anti-type as the temple pointing toward a future destruction of God's creation. Just as the temple was burned, so the earth will be burned. And the elements will melt with a fervent heat, Peter tells us. We had what we might consider a near and far fulfillment. Remember the telescope, beloved, right? Turn it this way, and the near comes into focus. Turn it that way, and the far comes into focus. And here in our Olivet Discourse, we encounter a very similar structure. As we look at our text this morning, in just verses 6 through 8, that you see up on your screen or in your word in your lap, In verses 6 through 8, have you read anything there that you have not seen or encountered in your life? Verse 6, false messiahs, people claiming to be Christ. Absolutely. Verse 7, how about wars? Rumors of wars. These have always been with us. There is not a time since sin entered the world that we have not known conflict and war. Since Cain killed Abel. Earthquakes? Far back as we know. Famines? Terrible, yes. Up to this point, everything Jesus has talked about, we have seen in our lives and certainly in the history of humankind. So this is where confusion hits people. Where the accusations that scripture is vague and could mean anything are born. The tragedies in this part, that part of the Olivet Discourse have always been so. So where's the key? Where's the guiding line to get us oriented? Well, to work back to verse 6, our beginning verse, 
We must look to verse 8. That's why all three verses are stayed up there for you. And we'll see the title of our message today. These things are merely the beginning of birth pains. Ah, there's our map. Yes, we can first spin the telescope in. And we will see all these things that have happened throughout human history. All these tragedies and deceptions have marred the human existence. And so in that way, it is a living reminder of what is coming. It is something of a near fulfillment. It's a pointer to a future and a greater display of judgment. Because, beloved, all the wars we see now, all the deceptions we see, the terrible earthquakes, the famines, the suffering, that's just the temple. That's child's play compared to what's coming. The type of the temple that would burn was an anti-type of the world that would burn, and so it will. What we see before us today in our history books and on the news is just a taste. It's just a type of what is to come. So in a lesser sense, are verses 4 through 13 dealing with our present age? Well, yes, if we turn the telescope in. But the intention of Jesus here in the Olivet Discourse is not to turn the telescope, telescope in, it's to turn it out. It's to turn it out. The great fulfillment of the Olivet Discourse is future. And we know that not only because none of the things in verse 14 and beyond have happened yet, but because of verse 8. These things are merely the beginning of birth pains. Now hang on. Now, before we start talking about birth pains and why that matters, let's talk about the baby. It's going to make a lot more sense starting at the end and working backwards. What is the baby? If we're having birthing pains, we're giving birth. So what is that? What's arriving? The birth is the second coming of Christ. The new birth is the new creation. It is the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. It is the dawning of the millennium, the 1,000 years where Christ will rule and reign. That's the baby. But we said the key here for interpretation is birth pains. Do we have birth pains, birth contractions during the entire pregnancy? No. And every mother said amen. Right? When do we start having birth pains? When we are about to give birth to the baby. And as we get closer and closer, the contractions and the pains get more violent and more extended. Look at our text. All of these things are going to happen, verses 6 and 7. But these are only the beginning of birth pains. Or as Matthew's account of this says, you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. This gives us our timeline. If the proverbial baby is the second coming, Revelation 19 to the end, then what we are describing up to this point are the birth pains, just prior to birth, that which happens just prior to Jesus' second coming. And those birth pains are called the tribulation. The seven years that will bring about the Antichrist and the bowls of wrath and judgment. If Jesus' ascension, follow me, beloved. If Jesus' ascension began the birth conception of the last days, which we are in, 
We don't know how long the pregnancy will be. No man knows. Maybe 2,023 years. And we will have some pains and discomforts along the way. But we do know that when the church is raptured, the moment that that preserving and salty element of God's people are removed from the earth, that's when the water breaks. And the great Babylon will sit up with a start and she'll grab her sides as the fierce contractions hit and they will get worse and worse as the birth comes closer. These are the seven years of the tribulation. This is what is fully described in the Olivet Discourse. And the last cry of pain, the final scream, will come at Armageddon on the plains of Megiddo for a final battle. This is what that day looks like. You want to hear it? Revelation 19. And I saw heaven opened. Here comes the baby. And behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, listen to this, beloved, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. By the way, do you know who those armies are? Well, they're made up of four regiments, actually. Fine linen, white and clean. Well, we're told earlier who that is. First, Revelation 19, 7 through 8. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. They're ready to go. And he was, it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. That's you. Your regiment won. Then we see earlier, Revelation 7, 13 through 14. Who else is in this army? Those Christians who converted during the tribulation and were martyred for their faith. Listen, then one of the elders answered, saying to me, these who are clothed in the white robes, who are they? And where have they come from? I said to him, my Lord, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. There's Regiment 2. Then we have the Old Testament saints who are resurrected at the end of the tribulation. That's a whole other message for a whole other day. We read about that in Daniel 12. And finally, the mighty angels of heaven, Matthew 25, 31. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. There's your four regiments coming back in Revelation 19. And you're with them. That's kind of exciting. Even Baptists can smile at that. But beloved, you're not coming back to fight. You're coming back to rule with Christ and to occupy the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem. Encourage yourselves with these words, brethren. Back to our scene at Armageddon, Revelation 19, the final battle, the final and greatest birth pain, the, the final scream, if you will. From his mouth comes a sharp sword. So that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun, 
And he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God. Well, that sounds pretty good. That's not good. So that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Imagine seeing that mighty heavenly host and still wanting to fight. The beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. That's a war. That's the doctor crying out, give me one more push in your judgment against mankind. Beloved, as we have laid down some foundational truths in this message, giving some overview, we've laid laid down some much-needed foundation. I don't want to overwhelm you. And next week, we will actually remain in verses 6 through 8 as we begin to drill down even further on them specifically. And we'll follow the parallel passages for these events in Revelation and Daniel and Zechariah. And this is amazing. But here, beloved, we sit in Lanesville 2023 as we have peeled back a few more layers of eschatology. We've taken you somewhat toward the end in an overview that we might work back forward. But what does that show us? Consider all that we see around us today. The world wars of history that's killed millions. The incredible deception of our age as we've watched earthquakes and tsunamis ravage cities. As we've watched children die by the millions from famine and hunger around the world already. Yet these are just a foretaste. That's not even the real contractions. The birth pains haven't even started yet. What does that mean for us as we walk out that door today? All of this is happening, near telescope, far telescope, whatever way you're looking, Because of sin. Because of God's hatred for sin. His perfection and his holiness. Now we are tempted in evil days to wonder with the psalmist how the wicked prosper. And how those who love the Lord seem to languish. Beloved, judgment delayed is not judgment denied. It is not a popular message today in churches. But scripture tells us that the wicked are storing up for themselves wrath for the day of wrath. Paul writes in Romans 2, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. It's going to be a revelation to these people when God's judgment comes in finality. When scripture says that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, it means that they were startled by it. They weren't expecting it. 
Who is this guy coming in the clouds and why is he so angry? So tell them. Even if they will not listen, tell them. Warn them in all love and sincerity of heart. Beloved, we live in light of the severity of sin. It's all around us. And we also live in light of the mercy that's offered through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Now, some may ask, why bother telling us about detailed events that we won't even be on earth to witness? Why tell us about the details of the Antichrist or of this bowl of wrath and that bowl of wrath? If we're to be spared from all that. There's many reasons. But two for your consideration this morning. Beloved, we must know God in all of his attributes. In all of his holiness and goodness that demand justice. We must behold the severity that God holds for sin. If the tragedy and suffering we witness every day on this side of things are not even the birth pains yet, what does that tell us about how God will deal with the ungodly? What does it tell us about your fate if you are not safely hidden under the cleft of Christ? If you are not hidden in Christ this day, know that you will try to hide yourself on that day. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne. And from the wrath of the Lamb, the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Beloved, might we love others enough to warn them? Might we snatch some from the fire as wise men? Might we watch our own walk with diligence and live upright in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Oh, beloved, that we might see his kind face. That we might lie down in green pastures and sit next to still waters. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost come. It is on offer today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are humbled by these truths, Lord, and in a way that, Lord, we can barely grasp the magnitude. And Lord, we've only begun to wade into the deep waters of the magnitude of how you will bring justice to the earth. Lord, we do desire as your people today to know your kind face. And Lord, we do hide ourselves under the cleft of the rock, who is Jesus Christ. Lord, that he would cover us, that we would find shelter under the wings Lord, that we might live in safety and joy. Lord, we ask that these sometimes 
hard to understand things would settle in the hearts of the saints this morning, that they would know you better, that they may love you more. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.